You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good evening, and welcome to the fifth episode of Morph Mom Moments. This is very exciting. We made it past a month, so we're very, very excited. I'm Kathleen Smith. I am Morph Mom, and I'm here tonight with my very special co-hosts, Elizabeth Lentz and Lisa Berkery, and my very special guest, Maria Devaney, author of Everything I Need to Know, I Learned at Vogue. Um, and we're going to get to that momentarily. I want to do a very quick very, very quick uh, introduction as to what Morph Mom is exactly. And for those who have been listening for five weeks, which is very exciting to say, I apologize for this being repetitive. Um, but for those who are just tuning in tonight, uh, Morph Mom Moments is to share women's stories. And basically, uh, I'm a former lawyer many, many, many eons ago. I stopped, had kids, uh, couldn't go back, and I started Morph Mom. And if you're interested in seeing it, it's morphmom, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M dot com. And it's basically about connecting women, sharing stories, and empowering women. You can go to the website and see many, many stories of women from all over the country, actually the world, well over 500 stories about women who've done very different things, um, how they did it, their journey to get there, what worked, what didn't work. We have events around the country as well to connect people in person. I write for Huffington Post and share the stories. And now you're experiencing our fifth show. We have a radio show and we share the stories here as well. So again, it's morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. And it will make more sense when you see it in person. <laughs> Hearing it probably makes no sense. Um, and most importantly, please call in tonight. You can call in at any time. And I'm going to ask Elizabeth Lentz to give the number. 212-631-7553. Okay, so now that we got that out of the way, we're going to skip right to our guest, Maria Devaney, and we are thrilled beyond belief to have you here tonight. Um, And as I've said, you are most recently an author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned at Vogue. And before we get into that, I'm going to ask you to give a little bit of a history as to how you became an author and sort of your journey to where you are today. Um, well, I graduated from Georgetown in 1990 and then worked in fashion and media for 14 years, first at Bergdorf Gibman in their fashion and PR office, um, then at Vogue, and then at the New York Times for seven years. And it was after I left the New York Times, again, raising three children and in a job working in a closer-to-home capacity, that the lessons from Vogue that I had learned once upon a time began to crystallize in my mind and they started to form an outline that I realized was valuable and it was an outline that I kept referring to in my own head, in my own life, time and time again, whatever the job, including at the New York Times. So my husband one night said something to me and said, well, how did you know that? And I said, well, everything I need to know I learned at Vogue. 
And he said, what does that mean? And I said, well, I learned this, I learned that, I learned this, you know, these other three things. And they were just key lessons in life that I could never have survived had I not had that experience. So he said, you need to begin to write these lessons down for your, our daughter, Margot, who was then seven, who's now 13. And she's our oldest of three. So I did. And they, <laughs> I would think of them in the middle of the night and I would write them down and I would look at the sheet of paper or my laptop the next morning and it was like a madman had taken over. Like they made no sense and, you know, I was just rambling, but they made sense to me. So eventually I sorted them out and they, you know, sort of, um, it became clear that there was a message that I wanted to pass on to Margot. And then uh, in in a parallel fashion, um, a, commit, a program that means the world to me, which is the Georgetown Scholarship Program, um, is a, a program where I spend a lot of time with the kids, mentoring them and passing along thoughts and preparing them for life in the real world. So, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but would you explain to us a little bit more about the Georgetown Scholarship Program that you just mentioned? So the Georgetown Scholarship Program was founded in 2004 by Dean of Admissions, Charlie Deacon, um, and Dean of Financial Aid, Pat- Patricia McQuaid. And present, we started with 50 students um, in who we enrolled in the fall of 2005. And present day, we have over 600 students on campus enrolled in the program, um, mostly first-generation college. Um, many have immigrated to this country during their childhood, and all are super talented incredible um, academically accomplished students and, may I add, just extraordinary human beings. So I love more than anything spending time with these kids. So tangentially, I was writing these lessons down for my daughter, but began sharing them with these incredible kids. So um, eventually, I realized that my rambling writings could turn into something. So I took what was meant to be private and never, you know, to be seen by the public um, for my daughter and translated it into uh, this book for the Georgetown Scholarship Program kids. When was it that you sort of realized you would make this transition? Um, We had a series of seminars on campus over the course of about three years. So I would take the writings that I already had in place. And because I began writing them for my daughter once upon a time, I was always speaking to an imagined grown-up version of her. But suddenly I had the kids in front of me, and I knew exactly who I was speaking to. So I spent the next three years of the total and six rewriting the material because I, I could picture the kids in my mind's eye, and I knew that this would be relevant for them. So when you say relevant for them, what is it exactly that you were writing about? Um, the recurring themes that I saw play out in in every position I've ever held professionally, and frankly, not just professionally, but in life, in any um, volunteer position, in you know, and then the larger life lessons that we see play out as as mothers, um, right, for our children day after day. Was there an age group you were targeting with this? Definitely, you know, the um, the mission was to speak to the Georgetown students who are juniors and seniors and get them ready for the real world. So that, that age group, I would say 20-something overall because, frankly, I didn't learn these lessons until I was older than that, and it would have been useful for me to have done so. 
Now, we currently are honored to have uh, DR with us. Itayam, exactly. And DR, can you hear us now? I'm hoping she can. Oh, great. So um, for listeners out there, DR is a Hoya alum, a Georgetown alum, an alum of the Georgetown Scholarship Program as well. Class of 2014, right, DR? And a mentee of Maria. And DR, we'd love to hear your story about how you came to meet Maria and how this book came to be with you as a part of this entire coming of age and how this all happened. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's always a pleasure working alongside Maria and promoting her work. Um, To begin, the way I met Maria was a happy accident, I like to say. Um, There was a... GSP uh, event um, for women, and Maria graciously offered her time to come during our spring break and take us out to um, to lunch. And the theme of the lunch was, you know, women's success. How do we um, use um, art etiquette and professionalism to um, propel us forward in our careers? And so I went, not knowing what was going to be in store, but before we went to this um, lunch, um, we were given this booklet of uh, these stories and snippets of advice, and I picked it up, and I looked at it when I started reading it, and I could not put it down. It was this witty, um, kind of like inspiring but tough love type of writing um, that you got so much out of the first time, but then you read it the second time, you got this second layer that you didn't get the first time, and I fell in love. Before I even met her, I was like, what is this brilliant work? So then I actually met her, and I think we just clicked from the beginning. Absolutely. Um, I was inspired <laughs> by her. <laughs> and DR, and, will you give us a little bit of your background and how, now you're in medical school? Currently, but will you sort of give us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved with Georgetown and so, with Maria? DR, tell us about your early childhood and the whole evolution to your, you know, incredible success at Georgetown. Okay. Um, first of all, I guess um, I'm Palestinian. Um, my parents are both Palestinian. If you've been keeping up with a lot of the Middle Eastern wars, it's a quite chaotic area right now. Um, during the second war, after the second war started, um, we moved back to the U.S. So I was born in the U.S. and we moved back. Um, and throughout high school, I mean, it's it's a little bit. It was a little bit of a struggle throughout, but um, and you moved to Georgetown somehow. You moved to Tennessee, <laughs> right? What's up? You moved to Tennessee. Yes. From from um, Lamola, Palestine. And you were how and old? You were how old? Yes. I was I was studying fourth grade. Right. From Palestine. So, um, I was, I don't know, I don't even know the age 12. <laughs> <laughs> and made it to Georgetown, which was another happy accident. Um, my dream school, I never thought I would ever um, approach anything close to Georgetown. Um, How did you make it to Georgetown? To go Good. How did you make it to Georgetown, DR? Tell us your story of, of right, your match make in heaven with the Georgetown Scholarship Program. Yeah, that's what actually I was about to go into. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to get to Georgetown um, without the help of GSP. Financially, Georgetown was not an option. Um, without the scholarship, and not just 
the financial support, the uh, mentorship and the programs that GSP offered helped me excel at Georgetown. And now um, I'm in medical school um, trying to start my career in medicine. And so where are you in medical school right now? Right now I'm at Mayo Medical School. I'm in the first year, so I'm just six months in. Um, first year and living the dream. At the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, right? Yes. Right? And so tell us about last year when you, right, your year, first year out of school, you just graduated and you went back home to Tennessee and you worked as a medical scribe in the hospital, right? So I um, took a gap year um, and worked for an otolaryngologist, so that's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon um, in a private clinic. Um, and I was a scribe, so that's the person who... Uh, is writing up the reports, um, doing kind of some behind the scenes, but also gets to be in the room to record the patient and physician interaction. So I got to see this incredible surgeon in action, and he taught me like I was his resident. So it was this amazing physician um, student interaction, but I couldn't have succeeded without some of Maria's advice and that she wrote in her book, um, Everything You Need to, to Learn. Everything you need to know, I learned about. <laughs> so, okay, and I want to ask you about that. So when you said you couldn't have, what things grabbed you as you're thinking about this? What things really touched you about the things that Maria wrote or specific things that you still carry with you today? Oh, uh, I think her writing was very targeted to our struggles that we were, were going through in college. You don't know what you want to do. You're like, you feel like you're faking it. You're trying to um, figure out, like, what to wear on job interviews. You're trying to figure out how do you emanate this presence. Um, medical school interviews are a big deal. Um, I had no idea where to start. How do you prepare yourself? How do you become a professional so that others will look to you and say, yes, we want to hire her? Or I, yes, we want to admit her to medical school. I, and she gives kind of step-by-step process on how to do it. I have a question. You just said something that sort of caught me. Um, emanated presence. What did that mean to you as a college student and now looking back? Um, I think it's difficult when you don't have um, the networking um, coming from maybe a disadvantaged background um, to know who to connect with, how to network. And a lot of that is just being confident and taking the risk. Going up to someone and you shake their hand, doing a, giving a firm handshake, um, looking them in the eye, standing tall, like little things that you think are easy, but if you've never really been around that environment, you wouldn't know about. I actually have a so question. That presence. <laughs> I have a question for you, actually. I have a senior who is about to graduate college, and what would be the advice you would want to give her? She's about to embark on the whole interview process. Uh, anyway, we could talk about this for days. I <laughs> I spent months preparing for interviews. Um, first of all, it's practice. Um, there are so many things at the beginning of my interview practice sessions that I would just get so nervous about everything I was saying. Oh, that didn't come out right. Or, oh, I messed up here. I should have said this. Or I would jump to answer questions because I'm like, oh, I can't like think too hard about this because they're going to think I don't have the answer. And there's so much anxiety. I think a large part of 
better at interviews is being able to just be yourself and saying, this is what I offer. Mm -hmm. This is who I am. And being uh, calm enough so that your inner, um, what you can offer can kind of come out on its own. That's, I think, the hardest part. It's not exactly knowing what to say for this question, but being comfortable enough so that when you do answer your question, you're not jittering and you're not... (laughs) taking back your word, like, oh, actually, I meant this. So it's all about trying to control the calmness. The calmness. Hmm. Keep calm and carry on, right? Now, for listeners out there, again, we're talking about Maria Devaney's book, Everything I Need to Know, I Learned at Vogue. And as we're hearing from DR, it literally is a playbook for millennials, but to be quite honest, any more from anybody out there. I'm listening to this, listening to you, DR, thinking, yeah, that's what I need to know. It, it, really can help anybody and it's broken into well i I guess i'll ask marie to explain this but sort of lessons like chapters are basically the lessons or the questions in the lessons well and that was the hardest part for me in structuring the content was in what order should it should it be laid out right so i begin with what was edited down to 17 stories and they're crazy stories and they're stories that no one could make up and they are highly complimentary to Vogue and the only one who ever looks bad in the book is me. So (laughs) in every one of the 17 stories with which I lead, um, I look like the person dropped on planet earth out of nowhere who knew nothing and you know was observing casually or not so casually that which was what was going on around me and there's always a crazy colorful story paired with what I learned at the end so then um, I had to break it out in my right it was with the GS peers that it really came together and that DR if you remember in those sessions right I I led with, you know, here are the 10 things you need to know to get the job. Here are the 10 things you need to know to keep the job. (laughs) Here are the 10 things you need to know that I learned at Vogue that apply to life, you know, big picture. Um, And frankly, these lessons are applicable to getting any job, keeping any job, and and living a life, you know, well-lived. So um, it was really in those sessions with the George, <clears throat> excuse me, Georgetown Scholarship Program students that the, the priority of which stories I should share and then the outline of the lessons themselves came together. And I think, and DR, you might agree with this too, so I have a 19-year-old daughter, and in this crazy, competitive, scary world, I think it's great and refreshing and so important to hear every once in a while that not everything goes right all the time mm-hmm. and things don't always happen like you expect them to happen and you survive, you get back up and it's okay. And that's what I think is also so invaluable about this book. Well, And the other thing is that the world has an, an unwritten set of rules by which we all live. And so frankly, I arrived at Vogue not knowing that there was a set of rules and thank God. I mean, there's something about me where people sort of take me under their wing. So when I arrived, people pulled me aside and they said, you know, we like you. We we really like you. So here's how we do things. It was not my imagination. They said, Hmm. here is how we do this. Here is how we do that. Here's where. And they would outline for me the way things are done. So it became, you know, my own roadmap to survival in my own head um, that eventually made it to paper. 
and again, another lesson that I think, and sort of the reason I even created Morph Mom to begin with, was the thought of empowering others and not worrying about, you know, if I give, what do I get back? It's, it's right. about giving and being really happy that someone else is succeeding from what you're giving them. And that's also what this book gives as well. Completely. So I thought to myself, well, thank goodness those people pulled me aside at one point and said, it's not, it's, this is how we do things. And I thought, you know, two of us are not going to grow up to work at Vogue, which is wonderful. <clears throat> Excuse me. My own daughter wants to grow up to cure autism, which is just That's makes my heart sing, right? <laughs> exactly. It's wonderful. But I thought even if, you're, if, if she grows up to cure autism, she will still need to know the same things that I learned at Vogue in order to right. move through this world successfully and walk into a room and read the room and navigate the room and um, have successful interactions in individual and group settings. So, um, you know, for me, that was the motivating factor initially. And then being able to share this information with the Georgetown Scholarship Program kids who are frankly smarter than the rest of us. (laughs) It's the it's (laughs) this is what I can do for them because they are the most talented group of people I've ever met in my entire life, individually and collectively Um, equipped with this information. They can do anything, literally. There is no question. So. I I think, again, and I will back this up, that Georgetown Scholarship Program is the most amazing program out there. The kids are the most amazing kids, and it's so interesting tonight. It's, as... it's also cutting edge in the country. Mm-hmm. So we are the leader in higher education, um, and we it's a groundbreaking program. Um, again, uh, founded in 2004 by Charlie Deacon. It was his vision, and um, we now have... Harvard, Duke, and Brown formally studying us, um, Stanford as well, but uh, in another capacity, and other schools like Yale and ad infinitum, um, trying to mimic that which we created. And if DR is any example for anybody out there, I would like, <laughs> yeah, I would like to be your exactly. mind mentor. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, um, I have something extra specific to add. Um, Maria uh, was mentioning how her book is relevant to not just the fashion world, and um, that specifically is what resonates with me. Um, the book is so funny. I can't <laughs> emphasize I that enough. I agree. <laughs> I read it yesterday. I loved it. It's a quick, it, it, easy yeah. read, and I was laughing the whole time. It's Wait, it, yeah. It's not, there's so many books out there that are like, how to learn a job, how like real life examples that apply to so many different careers. I'll give you an example of one that I use. So one of um, her lessons is um, don't try to change anything in your, your new job until you're you know, a few months in. And that actually played to my advantage because when I did spend those first few months um, figuring out the culture and who was really in charge and um, how the dynamics worked in the office, at the end uh, of my back year uh, job, I was actually able to make changes because I waited and I observed who was really the one, uh, who was the person who was um, really in charge in the office. So that's just one example of how it can apply to all kinds of careers. So the people who truly wield the power, like Margit and Helmet, who ran the newsstand at Condé Nast once upon a time. <laughs> so... Right, so the GSP kids who I adore, their favorite characters in this order are Margit and Helmet, who ran the Condé Nast uh, magazine and newspaper stand, um, 
Then they love Ron, as in Ron Galati, who was publisher of Vogue once upon a time, um, who's, who was the inspiration for Mr. Big in Sex and the City. He was the real inspir- life inspiration. <laughs> um, then their, their third favorite character is Sebastian, <laughs> as in Sebastian Younger. And, D.R., you might remember sitting at the tombs with Jose one night when when I asked if you guys knew who Sebastian Younger is. And you said, oh, my God, of course we do, you and Bonnie Bell. And Jose said, well, um, actually, I didn't, but I Googled him, and he seems totally real. <laughs> and then, of course, their other favorite character is Anna Wintour in the book. Um, I think, again, going back to what you just said, Dior, about like how life is also kind of funny. These are all the little things I think we miss. And looking at my kids growing up, and like Lisa was saying, and Elizabeth, the same thing, you kind of need them to see that things have to be funny sometimes. Things have to go wrong, and they have to be kind of funny, and you're going to survive it. And as, Actually, and you, you'll do better if you yeah. can see the sense of humor in it, mm-hmm. because I did not see the sense of humor in any of this at the time. And I was my job was always on the line in my mind, and I was always about to be fired. You were and so young. Right. I was you were so, so young, young. And so intense. I look at my daughter, and I think, okay, well, and, need to, right. But frankly, it was, a a much, right. it was a much tighter job market when I was at Vogue. And so, you know, we always knew that there was a line around the block for our job because it was Vogue, but frankly, in this economy, it's a completely different backdrop, and so all the more reason why your skills need to be sharpened and why you need to look at this as an outline for, you know, it will guide you towards success. And I, and I would throw in now as a shameless plug for Morphom at the same time, <laughs> not only is the book itself incredibly valuable, but the mere fact that Maria having this career that spanned many different worlds and many different arenas at this age decided, I'm going to write a book. So that's the other thing to know is that it's always out there. It's always possible. We can do this. And we have people like Maria and Elizabeth and Lisa and everybody here tonight that you, you can do it. A little bit of support and you can see if one road is not working, if one door closes, and I know people say this all the time, but it, it is so true. You just never know what can happen. And that's what I think even the overall idea of you publishing this book is, yeah, I can do it. Well, but the likes of DR and the other Georgetown Scholarship Program kids are going to take this and improve it in ways that I couldn't even possibly imagine, and it will it will become a variation of a larger theme in all of their lives, and they will then pass that on to countless others, mm-hmm. and so the infinite quality to this is the very essence of the Georgetown Scholarship Program. So, And I'm going to interrupt for one second. For those who've joined us recently, I just want to, and I'm getting, I'm new with this, so I'm learning that I have to break in and explain what's going on. Um, I'm sitting here tonight with my very special co-hosts, Elizabeth Lentz and Lisa Burgery, and our very special guest tonight, Maria Devaney, author of Everything I Need to Know, I Learned at Vogue, which is literally, we all need to read it. I mean, I have read it. We all need you to go out and get this. And for ourselves, our kids, for everybody. Um, and please feel free to call in. We have a live call in. And Elizabeth, I'm going to ask you to share. It's 212-631-7553. That's 212-631-7553. And we also have a very special guest, if everyone can tell, who 
is via phone, <laughs> is in the studio, basically. Uh, DR, who is a GSP, a uh, uh, Georgetown graduate, a uh, Georgetown Scholarship Program graduate, uh, currently in medical school, and a, an example to all of us, and very integral in the way this book came to be, was there when Maria was posing her ideas, and DR was there with the questions, and sort of very a, much a part of how this book developed. And very much a member of the contingent, perhaps the leader of the contingent, who encouraged me and I'll understate that DR right to race to the finish line with this so the GSP I just thought like I just thought there's no way this can go unread it was just incredible and I kept nudging her how did you respond to this how what did you do with this situation and it inspired me in my own life to just go for it take the risk and go for that interview well thank you Maria well, no, and so the first time that I thought that this could actually become something was when DR took the, it, it wasn't even a manuscript, it was just sort of a cleaned up outline of the ramblings <laughs> that I'd put together to date, and that was about three years ago, so so three years into the six-year journey, right? Um, and DR took my very raw writings and created the GS peers in these lunches, right, um, decided, and it's it's typically collaborative in spirit of the Georgetown Scholarship Program, that the people who attended the lunch shouldn't be the only ones with the information. So DR, you took it and ran with it and created a closed website uh, with a password with the material for all 640 Georgetown Scholarship Program students, right? I just thought that this needed to, to come out to all the other GSP students so they could benefit more from it, but it was all your work. I didn't I didn't do anything other than like allow you to present your work to our to my peers. Well, but that's the moment that I saw that this might be valuable. And then and then other GSP peers said we want to share it with our you know, our siblings and our friends at other schools and, and then you know, the Georgetown community at large, which was very complimentary. So, Dior, I have a question for you. You spoke about one of the lessons that helped you, which was the interview and the confidence in the interview. Are there any others that stood out to you or that you've used either applying to medical school, interviewing, or currently while you're at medical school? Is there anything else that, that you sort of have, have, have really helped you along the way? Gosh, that's such a hard one. I think maybe the... Um the lesson that if you work hard and you think no one's noticing, people are noticing. If you're the first one in the office, if you're the first one on rounds in the hospital, whatever it may be, you have to be going out of your way to be your best. And even if you think no one's looking, people will know. Hmm. I think that's a big, big lesson. I love but that. But there are so many, I can't even, I do too. I can't, I can't even start to pick. That's great. It's true because it's, it's you're almost you're doing it for yourself as well, right? You're not always putting on a show for somebody else. It's the hard work and you're driven yourself that makes a difference. Exactly. And do you feel, I have a question, so contemporaries, and I'm not talking about GSP because we know every single student is 100% there. I'm talking about now you're out in the real world. Do you see a difference with other kids? Do you see other people following these rules or do you almost run into kids where you're like you know you need to read this book I have a great book that would help you can you sorry can you repeat the question I, I didn't hear you as well sure now that you're sort of you're out in the real world now and 
do you ever sort of run into a contemporary or a friend who you think it may benefit to read Maria's book and to sort of regroup as to how they may be presenting themselves or how they're working or that this book just could help somebody that is sort of maybe not not following the rules as maybe they should be? Um, I think everyone's trying. Um, I love that you said out in the real world. I, we joke in medical school that we're not going to be out in the real world for another 10 years. But um, <laughs> I think it would be most beneficial for people who don't know what to do. What's the next step to improve um, themselves? I, I call it investing in myself. That's what the term I, I use, the terms I use. Because you have to invest in yourself so that it's a long-term um, success. You don't want to do anything that's going to burn you out right now. So how can you become your best self now so that in 10 years you're still improving and you're still um, getting better because you're constantly anxious about, am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing this? It gets exhausting. And I've learned to kind of suppress that. We all have that anxiety in our heads. It's like, oh, what, what should I be doing? How should I be presenting myself? When I go to these uh, events or meetings uh, or research conferences, like, what should I be doing? How vocal should I be? How, like, observant should I be? Um, this book kind of helped me uh, realize, okay, um, you just got to do your best to observe and listen and have good posture. Um, just the little things add up. So I think anybody who is looking for a book that's comprehensive but funny um, and that will help them gain confidence to know that they're doing the right thing. I think that's that's the audience that I would recommend them for. Well, and it's it's also a guide to how to be the very best unique self, right? That right, your your exactly. uniqueness ideally shines if you, if you follow this outline. Actually, I, I'm glad you brought that up because during the college age, I'm younger. We're thinking, how do I be like this person? How, how do I be like this other successful person? And this book kind of tells you like. Be you, but here are the ways that you can be successful by still being yourself. Okay, you're amazing. <laughs> okay, I want to be you. <laughs> you're no, so grounded awesome. and it's well balanced. I don't balanced. myself like from five years ago. Sometimes I like think back and I'm like, wow, I've come such a long way from the help of all of my mentors who are amazing and people who uh, helped me gain confidence. Well, it it came from within, and frankly, you know, the fact that it emerged is the essence of the Georgetown Scholarship Program. Absolutely. I mean, I can't emphasize how great this program is. It literally changed my life. I don't know how I would have made it to Mayo Medical School without Georgetown and the Georgetown Scholarship Program. I agree. I think, and, and I think, you know, it's also so refreshing as we listen to you, and mothers sitting at the table right now thinking I really hope my child speaks like this exactly (laughs) and is this kind and is this thoughtful and is this generous and realizing that you're right along the way people helped and it's the it's the generosity of others that helps you to get where you are and gratitude the gratitude that you in turn have and you exemplify that and we're all stronger when we work together right that's right but you know you get caught up and it's easy to get caught up but when you sit back and reflect like you clearly have DR and do now it's it's that thank you, just turning around and saying thank you for helping me, thank you for doing this, which and then encourages you, to, you know, then encourages you to help others and right. pay it forward again. 
So it's a, it's a great cycle Absolutely. we're getting ourselves into. Um, I have a question for you, Maria. So as you was saying, there's certain lessons um, in the book. Are there a few that are sort of your favorite or are, are there certain ones that stand out to you for a certain reason? Um, well, right. <laughs> I do think that my favorite characters are Margit and Helmet, who were the newsstand owners. Great <laughs> <laughs> right. right, DRs. Um, and, right, they uh, owned the magazine and, and newspaper stand in the lobby at 350 Madison once upon a time. And they were these characters who, they were, they were, I described them in the book. So Margit, they were a German couple and, you know, Margit was sort of, you know, plump and wearing nondescript clothing and terribly sensible shoes and, and, you know, handled all transactions at the cash register and barked at people in, you know, if they dared to break her, whatever rules, unwritten rules. And Helmet was constantly restocking the shelves with magazines and newspapers to, you know, people who came and purchased in droves from within the organization, which ironically published magazines (laughs) and newspapers. So I talk about the advertising and editorial assistants coming down in the elevators, you know, all getting off and great numbers from every single magazine, Vogue, Mademoiselle at the time, Glamour, Magazine, Vanity Fair, et cetera. And they would all go visit Margate and Helmet. And they would all, they were all assigned by their bosses to buy the competition's publications. So if you were working at Vogue, that meant Harper's Bazaar. Um, if you write, and, and also obscure titles like Visionaire Magazine, which eventually costs like 400 something dollars plus per issue. Um, that was all expense to one's individual magazine, by the way. And so people thought that they were just coming and buying publications for their bosses to eyeball and, you know, sort of look at the competition, what they were up to and who was advertising in them, et cetera. But the reality is that they would trade information, gossip going on at their magazine with Margit and Helmet, who would then be better equipped with even more information that they would then share back. And they knew who was, you know, getting a promotion next week, who was getting fired tomorrow. They knew who was up, who was down, who was, you know, whose star was shining, who was in a downward spiral. And so they looked like this lovely German couple um, who were running a newsstand. But the reality is they were informants on a level that was just, you know, unbelievable. And so I tease where they saw Newhouse's spies Sai being the owner of Condé Nast, and I liken him to the Wizard of Oz, um, you know, were they his spies or were they just this random, <laughs> lovely German couple who knew everything? It didn't matter because you know, I, I say in the book that, you know, every organization has these people, and so you need to know who they are and figure that out quickly. So when we worried about something going on behind closed doors at Vogue, we would take the elevator down and pretend to go buy a lemonade for Margate and Helmet just to find <laughs> out, you know, sort of what what was being discussed behind closed doors. So my point is every organization has them. At the New York Times, it was a guy with a coffee kiosk on the corner of 43rd Street and 7th Avenue. And anytime we wondered what was going on inside the building, especially on the editorial side, we would go to... <laughs> 
outside to the corner and ask him what was happening. And he could tell us, you know, if the publisher was making certain high-level decisions or not. And so my point is, like, you know, pay attention because, right, to DR's point, um, if you look at it with sort of a, a highly developed sense of the absurd, all of these workplaces are, you know, are fascinating sort of studies in in things going on behind the scenes that might not appear to be um, obvious to you. And, and, and all of the less... Oh, I'm sorry, are you going? No, no, you go. I was going to say that uh, I thought I was immune to all this and when I was naive because I thought, oh, I'm going into medicine and medicine is pure and it, it's based on applications and it doesn't have all this stuff to it. But I realized every industry has these basic, um, every industry has these basic um, characteristics um, that Maria is talking about. So now I've, I, I so agree with that. I mean, every aspect of life, you have to yes. keep your eyes open, right? Just anywhere you are, it's a good thing. And not in a negative way. That's the other thing. Like, it's like, just keep your eyes open, talk to everybody. Every single person, it does. And don't worry about a title. That's the other thing I think nowadays people are looking at, you know, Googling your resume before you talk to somebody. That's not what this is about. Like, exactly the story Maria just said. Keep your eyes open and just speak to everyone. You never, like, you just never know what you'll learn, the good and the bad. Well, and the other, along the lines of sort of things not being as they appear, I purposely in the introduction um, describe certain elements that were absolutely true and that make the place seem far far more fluffy than you, right? People, it plays into people's expectations of Vogue. Um, And I will read you the first paragraph. What can you say? Yay, they finally get to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) What can you say about a place where champagne was on the weekly office supplies order form? where a six-foot-long hot pink feather boa was Monday morning office wear, a place that had its own voice coach and where the publisher was the real Mr. Big of Sex in the City fame. What would you call this place? Vogue. Have you ever imagined yourself working for the world's most powerful fashion magazine? I did. But after I landed this impossible-to-get job, I found myself on a wild ride, one for which I was not initially equipped. So Vogue made me over from the inside out. And when they were finished, I was permanently transformed. I discovered that the magazine could take 20-somethings and turn them into polished professionals, and I know their secrets for doing so. And here's the best part. It turns out that following Vogue's unique formula is critical to success in fashion or any other industry. Technology, education, finance, law, medicine, nonprofit, you name it. So if the world were your personal runway, how would you choose to walk it? You would want to be fabulous in the moment, wouldn't you? Here you will find exactly what it takes to pull it off. Perfect. How do we even how do we follow that up? (laughs) It doesn't get old. Well (laughs) and and, and my my point is I I start out with the frivolous qualities that one associates with the magazine but the reality is i think that columbia business school or the top business schools in our country could study vogue as a best of breed Mm. business and frankly we could extract some very serious 
um, important business lessons from them. Now, I have a question for you, getting back to the lessons. And when you guys all go out and buy this book tonight, I'm sure as you're doing, again, it's everything I need to know. I learned it, Vogue. Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. It's sold out on BarnesandNoble.com. It's sold out at the Strand.com, S-T-R-A-N-D.com, a bookstore at uh, West 12th and Broadway, right near NYU. Georgetown I- University. University bookstore, all kinds of other tower books. <laughs> we can keep going, yes. Um, and, on it, and buy it for yourself and your kids. Like, it really, really is, as you can yeah. hear from DR. It's a great graduation present. It, right, it, it right. really is. Um, but I have a question for you. So as we, and again, for those of you who have joined in, we are here at uh, Morph Mom Moments, and I'm sitting with Elizabeth Lenz and Lisa Berkery, interviewing the incredible Maria Devaney, author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned at Vogue. And DR is here in... By phone, but we feel like you're here, DR, with us. DR, time, class of t- 2014 Georgetown Scholarship Program. And just one of the most Future amazing people. Future rock star doctor, doctor to be. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, <laughs> I have a I'll question. <laughs> yes, definitely. I have a question for you. So again, for those again chiming in, each of the chapters is sort of a lesson that Maria learned while working in Vogue and how it's not just about Vogue, but it's about life in general. So you talked about some that meant to most. What was one of the hardest lessons you had to learn? Hmm. <laughs> um, or something that really like. Well, I love the beginning, the first chapter, just about landing the job and mm-hmm. your tenacity about going back and back. I mean, you faced failure and just kept going back. It's just awesome. Well, I think, frankly, yeah. so I just flipped to. I think one of <laughs> one of my favorite chapters, or I think it a key lesson, right to to master on any job. It's chapter number 16, and I call it Manage the Stress, and it's very short, so I'll read it. Um, There was a tremendous amount of pressure at Vogue. It could be physically felt, and the stress levels often had people so on edge that many days had an everyone-out-for-themselves feel to them. One spring day, afternoon, it took its toll on one of the nicest people at Vogue, and a luminary, no less, who left the building in an ambulance. Either the stress of intra-office politics had overcome him, or he had had a heart attack, or both. (laughs) I am pleased to report that stress of office politics was indeed the diagnosis, and that this lovely man lived to fight on another day. While this particular story ends well, it registers an important point. In every work setting, you will encounter people who feel it is their job to push your buttons and see what you are made of. Size up these situations and take charge of them or they will end up owning you. Take a deep breath and put an action plan in place to put your detractors back in that corner where they belong. To pull this off, you will need people, in quotes. Cultivate friendships in your work setting with people who you hopefully admire or at least like well enough. One of these people should be at your level so you can confide in them and commiserate a bit. Another key confident should be, confidant should be higher than you so they can operate day-to-day within the organization in a got-your-back fashion. And then I end every chapter with a lesson. The lesson, know that in any new job, someone will be out to get you. Bad things happen to good people, and at some point they will happen to you. Use your pre-selected people to protect and politic for you inside the organization. Now, DR, hearing that, have you had any experience with something like this? (laughs) I 
think everyone has probably experienced something like this. And we have CEOs come and talk to us about how to be successful. We have all these um, people come to mentor us to ensure that we improve in our wellness and our leadership skills. And I've been able to add to some of these lessons that Maria uh, established for me as a background. And one of the things that um, that people talk about when they train us here at, in medical school is to have your antidote against those quote-unquote haters. And those antidotes are going to be the kindness, compassion. Um, you have to fight it with kindness. And I know that sounds really weird. Um, how do you fight hatred with kindness? But you have to um, realize that... Um, that if you don't fight... not like you. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, right, dear. If you don't fight, exactly, then who wins? You have to fight for it, but you have to fight for it in the right way. I think that's where people fall short is they try to fight back in the same hateful way that someone else maybe is treating them, and you never know what that person's going through. I think you have to look at it from the lens that, like, how can I be above the situation but without undermining this person? So it's a tricky, it's a tricky line. But I've been able to add to these stories, these lessons and stories of my own personal experience and how to like really navigate the situation. It, I think it's such an invaluable lesson, like walking away from something thinking I was myself in that. I, you know, like right, I, yes, right. I mean, it's and that's the thing I try and teach my kids, and we all here try and teach our kids that whatever that moment is, no matter what the outcome is going to be, if you can walk away thinking I did the right thing and you have to live like that. Yeah. It may not benefit you. You may, there may be some underhanded thing you could have pulled in or something that just wasn't right. But at the end of the day, it may help you in that nanosecond. But a year from 10 minutes from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, you're going to look back and regret every choice you made at that point. So that's, it's so invaluable what you're saying, DR. And that's what I wanted my daughter to know. And the fact that DR and, and everyone else, right, can benefit from this. And, the extent to which DR is going to succeed now on a level we can't even imagine, um, just as well. I'm, I'm thinking doctor slash co-author of the sequel <laughs> to everything I, I need to know. I learned no. Part two. <laughs> about it, DR. Done. And you know, so we're sitting here today. I have a question, actually. So we have daughters. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth has three sons. And how do you think, so we've been speaking about our fee, our daughter's reactions to this, and I also have two sons as well, but you have older sons, as does, as does Lisa, but what is your interpretation this, you know, like with your son as opposed to the daughters, as we've been saying? I don't think it's any different. I think it's universal. Um, these, you know, these lessons are vital in the workplace. They're vital in, in the family. They're vital in interpersonal relationships. Um, it's just universal. Well, and it's so funny in my meetings with the ongoing meetings with the Georgetown Scholarship Program kids, right, DR, you've been there when, you know, some sort of 20-year-old cool guy turns to me and he looks at me <laughs> incredulously and says, I had no idea that Vogue magazine would be so important to my future. And I'm, I'm equally incredulous looking back at him, but I'm thinking, yes, who knew? But absolutely, yes. <laughs> point about it being also relevant for men and boys. I think it is. I think it's also important, but I think it's especially important for women. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard of the statistics in terms of women leadership and why women aren't um, rising up to the top leadership positions. 
I think there's something inherent in like the female um, biology and them that we don't want to step over anyone's toes. Um, we say sorry. Oh, like I interrupted. Right. Whereas you're right. men, yeah. you're in totally rooms, right. they That's... can like be confident, and they're looked at as, oh, this person's confident and powerful. Versus if a woman did it, it looks like, oh, she's just power hungry. And there's this uh, divide that I think is reality. It's just reality. And I, that's why I think Maria continues to say this is a great book for women, even though it's universal for both women and men. But I think we need an extra push sometimes to tell us it's okay to lean forward, lean into your career. Right, but our sons also need to in order for the world to be a better place, our sons need to learn these lessons too so, so that, you know, it's collaborative and they're all working together. So absolutely, um, it's a great tool for women, but if the world's going to be a better place, our sons need to learn the same lessons. Well, and Elizabeth, to your exact point, so I, my oldest is my daughter, but I have two boys as well, sixth grade and third grade, and they have, I have imparted these lessons <laughs> <laughs> to them for sure. My whole family is a little sick of the material, but in a good way. So, so I have a question for you. So let's say there's somebody out there um, who wants to publish a book. What would you, and not, having no experience as an author, having no experience, but just has an idea and needs to get it to paper. What do you say? What's your... What's your recommendation? It's a you know it's a whole new world out there. I mean we're in such transition. So once upon a time, you know, I worked at in, at Bergdorf Goodman and PR, um, <clears throat> then Vogue, and then the New York Times, and you needed to be hired by somebody in order to be, as Kathleen put it, I don't like titles either, but in order to be like a publisher or an editor, somebody had to hire you, and now suddenly you can just go out and do it yourself. So. Um, I don't know. I think every unique voice is very valuable out there, and um, I am I am an uh, an example of that sort of experiment in action here. So um, I cannot. Our generation, our generation values um, authenticity. I think content is a big um, it's a, a big value for us. Is if it's something that the content is really good. No matter what medium, no matter how the person ends up getting published or ends up getting the material out there, it's the authenticity and the content that matters for our generation, I think. I wish we could talk about this. DR, I could listen to you all night. You guys. Amazing. I can't believe this, but the show is over. I am so sad. Those are awesome thoughts, and thank you. I'm hoping DR and Maria will come back and join us again because I, and I, I really think this is so invaluable that we could just talk about this forever. I am so grateful to you both, DR and Maria, and my amazing co hosts, Elizabeth (laughs) and Lisa. Hey, what's next week? Next week, we have an exciting show. I hope you all join us. We actually have one of the Real Housewives of New York coming on, Dorinda Medley. So, again, it's a live show. Call in. And every week will be exciting and new. And just please join us every Thursday night. And, and again, go to morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. If you have ideas for the show, if you have anything, look, we, we discuss the moments that we all have. And thank you all for listening tonight. Well, we won't see you, but you'll hear from us next <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> Good night. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS.
Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galitos also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galitos also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galitos is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station. You can call Galitos at area code 914-668-0100. Once again, the number is area code 914-668-0100. For information on reservations, or go to the website at www.galitosrestaurant.com. Enjoy your dining experience. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine. The Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street 